Well, thank you. Thank you, Rachel, for uh, sharing your story and helping us have these challenging conversations. Uh, you know, it was many years ago when I was a young leader in ministry that was a season of a lot of lost sleep. It was a series of nights in which I lay awake and I tossed and I turned and was just really struggling. And no, it wasn't because I had a newborn in the house, by the way. It was because of stress and anxiety and this overwhelming just sense of, of, of struggle, mental struggle. And a lot of it was on the heels of accusation and assaults on my character personally, challenges to decisions. But what made it the worst was the one, of, one of the principal people in my life at the time that I thought, who I thought would come alongside of me and, and be near and advocate and defend my character and help under, explain decisions and so on and so forth, in that moment, that great moment of crisis, completely sold me up the river. It was hard. And so I would lay awake at night and my mind would just be churning and re-spinning the narrative over and over and really trying to kind of grab a hold of the narrative and say, how can, how can I speak into this in some way to, to set the record straight and to defend my honor and my character and all this stuff? And the answer ultimately was, I can't. In fact, the songs that we sang this morning were really the answer I probably needed at the time, right? Surrender, like God is in control. It's not... You don't have to do that. And you know what's interesting? As I share that story, I've told you nothing of what the issues were specifically. And I would suspect that almost every single one of you can say, oh, I know what that feels like. I've been there. You know, maybe it's a close friendship that just disintegrated over something and you thought that they would be there. Maybe it's a, a child, a conflict with a child during an adulthood or something. Certainly it could be something in your own home, in your own marriage. It might even be within your company as you were working your way up or through the company. But we have these things that just churn in our minds and we try to control the narrative and ultimately you feel betrayed. You know, this morning we begin a new series in John's Gospel and the conclusion of John's Gospel called For Us. We're going to look at the last four chapters of the Gospel of John. And, and what, the, what it is, is John goes back to the narrative of the events and now Jesus' passion that he has done. What are the things he's done for us? And, and I want to say uh, this morning, this, this may seem a little irreverent, but I don't mean it that way, and just hear me out. That I think at times we rush to the cross. We rush to Jesus being nailed to the cross and the shedding of his blood, and rightly so, because that is the means of our atonement and the payment of our sin and forgiveness. But we rush past, especially if you've been raised in the church and been around the church for a while, what Jesus does for us as he leads up to the cross. Things like betrayal and being maligned and falsely accused and illegal illegally tried and so on and so forth. So we really want to, for lack of a better term, kind of linger in the Kidron Valley and the Garden of Gethsemane, these places we're going to read about this morning. Consider all that Jesus has done for us. So our message this morning is, is entitled, Jesus Undeterred. And undeterred in the dictionary, dictionary means persevering with something despite setbacks or obstacles. Persevering with something despite setbacks or obstacles. That's an understatement to what Jesus does for us. He perseveres. He is single-minded, resolute. And we'll see that in the text this morning. But our big point this morning, and perhaps uncharacteristic uh, for generally messages that I give, is very, very applicational, 
and, and really driven at perhaps the emotional response we have to conflict in our lives. So our big point is this, that the gospel calls us to unreasonable grace. And I'm using, I put that term in quotes because it's not a theological or doctrinal term, it's an emotional term. That from our point of view, the gospel at times, we are faced and called to respond with an unreasonable grace, but it's because Jesus is undeterred in going to the cross for us. And we'll look at sort of the beginning parts of that this morning. Uh, and I'm going to pray, and then we're, we're going to be in John chapter 18. We pray with me? Lord God, we really need uh, your wisdom and your clarity, Holy Spirit, as you bring forth your word to speak to us. Lord, some in this room this morning understand intimately right now the nature of betrayal. For others of us, it's, it's a long time ago, but there are scars and there's bitterness that we've never resolved. And so, Jesus, would you help us to see in how you respond a better way. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 18, and we'll begin in verse 1. We're going to read all the way to verse 18. John begins, he says, After Jesus had said these things, he went, with, went out with the disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden. And he, said to his, and he and his disciples went into it. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place because Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas took a company of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees and came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then Jesus, knowing everything that was about to happen to him, went out and said to them, Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. I am he, Jesus told them. Judas, who betrayed him, was also standing with them. When Jesus told them, I am he, they stepped back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, What is it? Who is it that you are seeking? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. I told you I am he, Jesus replied. So if you're looking for me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the words he had said, I have not lost one of those you have given me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. After that, Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword away. Am I not to drink the cup my father has given me? Then the company of soldiers and the commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus and tied him up. First, they led him to Annas, since he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews that it would be better for one man to die for the people. Simon Peter was following Jesus, as was another disciple. That disciple was an acquaintance, uh, acquaintance of the high priest, and so he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter remained standing outside by the door. So the other disciple, the one known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the girl who was the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Then the servant girl, who was the doorkeeper, said to Peter, You aren't one of his, this man's disciples too, are you? I am not, he said. Now the servants and the officials had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing there warming themselves, and Peter was standing with them warming himself. You know, it's interesting that Luke gets the credit for being the gospel writer who is super detailed. Uh, John's got a lot of really nitty-gritty details that uh, we could spend a couple hours if you guys had the time. But um, interestingly enough, uh, one of the details that stood out to me and that I read in a kind of funny way because of the last year and the pandemic and everything, when I first read this text to start preparing for it, and it, the, uh, the commentators will tell you that it, the important detail is that they lit a charcoal fire because it would not give a ton of heat, and that's why they were gathered closely together. And in my head, just like when I'm watching old TV shows now, I'm like, well, wait a minute, were they six feet apart? Were they masked? You know, we have, this, we have these, these new habits that we've, 
you know, we've done this long enough that we've formed new habits. And uh, I just want to take a moment this morning, kind of in, in the spirit of that, to let you know where we stand at GBC in terms of COVID protocols. Now, many of you probably received an email yesterday spelling that out. Uh, this is for those who didn't have a chance to see that email. So our plan going forward is over these next two weeks, uh, if you've had the opportunity or taken the opportunity to be vaccinated and you want to drop your mask, that is fine. That's what the state uh, and, and so forth are doing. Certainly the numbers are indicating that in the amount of uh, relative risk in our community. Uh, but at the end of the month, on May 30th, we're going to just make masks optional for everybody. And the reason for that is, as we've tried to maintain all along, and certainly we haven't done it perfectly, that the data regarding particularly hospitalizations and deaths is so low, and the infection rate is so low in our community, that the risk is really, really low. And so praise God for that. That's where we're headed. Enough on that. Uh, one other note, if maybe bears repeating, if, if you do feel sick, that we would still ask that you watch from home. We got the, uh, the great online option for you, so uh, please do that. Um, so let's get into the text a little bit this morning. John describes, he says, after Jesus had said these things, meaning the farewell discourses, the high priestly prayer, they went out and descended into the Kidron Valley and then went up to the Mount of Olives into this garden. We know from the other Gospels it's the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and actually spend a little bit more time there than what seems from John's Gospel. And we'll look at that in a little bit. But the Kidron Valley is an interesting... Um, just from a physical standpoint, but then what it, what it can uh, allude to metaphorically or spiritually. And I will admit, I'll probably over-spiritualize this a little bit for the sake of application this morning. My heartbeat this morning is application. Um, and so the Kidron Valley, uh, the word Kidron comes from the Hebrew word meaning cedar, cedar, so valley of cedars, and also is described as dry. It was a wadi that would only be filled with water certain times a year, high water stages, so on and so forth. But in the pre-Christian Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's also uh, called a dark valley. It's a valley of darkness. Some of that may come from things like in 2 Kings, during uh, King Josiah's reforms, when he guts the temple and the temple grounds of all kinds of uh, incense idol, uh, uh, altars to idols and Asherah poles and just all this garbage, he dumps it all in the Kidron Valley. Some of it he cuts up and some of it he burns and grinds to powder. You can read about that in, I think it's 2 Kings 20-something. Um, and so the, it has this uh, sort of connotation of being a valley of darkness. In addition, we see a, an Old Testament foreshadowing of what Jesus does here with his disciples in 2 Samuel 15. And at the time, David, Jesus' ancestor and predecessor and, and, and a type of Christ, is betrayed by his son Absalom. And to the degree to which he's forced to leave the city of Jerusalem, basically in, sh in, in shame. And as David and his entourage leaves the city of Jerusalem, they do so uh, in, in a veil of tears, so to speak, barefoot through the Kidron Valley, sort of foreshadowing and picturing what Jesus goes through here. And ultimately, Jesus goes to the cross. And so, as we talk about... Uh, the Kidron Valley in the Garden of Gethsemane, here's where we're going to over-spiritualize perhaps a little bit. And it's this idea that Jesus goes into the dark valley for us. But he also, it says he goes up to the Mount of Olives to this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane means olive press or place of the olive press. And we'll play with that a little bit uh, this morning. But the, the important point about Gethsemane is John tells us, we just read, that Judas would have known about it because Jesus often went there with his disciples. 
Now, Luke's gospel affirms this. Uh, Luke says in Luke 22 that Jesus went out and made his way as usual to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples joined him. So this was a place of common rendezvous and, and, and um, fellowship and prayer and probably teaching for the disciples and Jesus when they were coming and going uh, a handful of times to, to Jerusalem. And here's the point. This is a place that ultimately was a place of safety, right? It was a place of, uh, again, rendezvous and fellowship and so on and so forth for Jesus. And yet it becomes the very place of betrayal. And so Judas comes, and he brings this entourage. Judas comes and fulfills his intent to to betray Jesus. And I think this is an important stopping point, at least in my reading, I found myself saying, wait a minute, why does this carry the gravity, or why does it need to carry the gravity uh, here that perhaps I read past? You see, we spent a lot of time looking at Judas several weeks back. But in our study of the word, sometimes we can go, oh yeah, Judas betrays him, right, and then this happens. Judas had sort of fantasized about betraying Jesus. Then he actually planned it, Right, he went to the Pharisees, he received the 30 pieces of silver. Then Jesus, you know, more or less supernaturally calls him out at the Last Supper, and Judas leaves. Remember John's powerful picture, word picture there? He says, and it was night. But here's the deal. He actually goes through with it. He actually goes through to the, with it to the point of leading an armed, not really a mob. I mean, there were the temple police and the Jewish leadership, but there is a Roman, probably the better word is here, cohort of likely about 200 armed soldiers led by Judas. And if you don't think that this broke Jesus' heart, that he actually went through with it, it's one thing to say you're going to do something unkind or betray someone. It's another one, another thing to actually go through with it. And Psalms tells us, we read this verse a few weeks back, even my friend in whom I trusted, one who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Remember that image from a few weeks ago, if you were with us, that Jesus takes the morsel of bread and he dips it in the Paschal meal and he gives it to Judas, a symbol of fellowship and love and intimacy, almost an appeal to say, are you really going to go through with this? And so now we're at the moment of actual the actual execution of the betrayal. I want to just hang out there for a minute. Think what Jesus must have been feeling. Remember that he did this for me, for you. You know, I, I googled this week, it probably used the wrong word, great betrayals in human history. Should have used the word infamous. But I came up with a list of 10 or 11. We're only going to look at a couple of them. Number one betrayal in human history is Judas Iscariot. Even if it's secularized and more viewed as fable by the larger culture, he is recognized as the icon of betrayal. What about other betrayals? Well, before the time of Judas, but cataloged by Shakespeare, if you will, after the time of Judas and Jesus, is Cassius and Brutus, right? Et tu, Brute, you as well, my close companion, my trusted friend. And Julius Caesar is assassinated. Maybe something a little bit more recent and that has uh, uh, great relevance to Groton is Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, during the Revolutionary War, betrayed the revolution and attacked this very town. In fact, the battle that took place in, in uh, September of 1781 was the last victory of the English in the Revolutionary War. And it took place right over that hill. 
as Benedict Arnold led a, a troop of British and Hessian soldiers, sorry, I can't help myself, I've got to give you a little background here, and, and burned New London to the ground and completely massacred the entire force, I think it was like 160-something uh, soldiers and militiamen at Fort Griswold, including Colonel Ledger, who had handed his sword over in surrender. Here's the really interesting detail about, and this has nothing to do with the, our message, but we'll get there, about that betrayal and that attack. It was intended by Henry Clinton to be a diversionary tactic so that they would draw Washington and Rochambeau in their pursuit to attack Virginia, that they would distract, divert them to Groton, New London. Washington didn't buy it. And so it was completely unnecessary. But why did Benedict Arnold do it? There's probably three big reasons historically. Number one, he was a prideful dude. He wanted a higher military commission. He had been so successful in early battles in the Revolution, and at least from his point of view, had not been given the credit. Consequently, he was not the most uh, well-off, well-to-do guy. He'd spent a lot of money. He had debt, and he, he wanted more money. And then thirdly, after the death of his wife, he'd married a young woman named Peggy Shippen. And the Shippen family in, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, were ardent loyalists. And so all of that together, and today, and even in Benedict Arnold's lifetime, because he died much later in England, the name Benedict Arnold means traitor. All right, I digress. I admit that was an unnecessary digression, but what about somebody more recent like Vidkun Quisling? Some of you students of history, you'll know the name Quisling is the Benedict Arnold to the Nor Norwegian people. Quisling was a, a military officer who, unbeknownst to the Norwegian people, was having these conspiratorial conversations with Adolf Hitler and literally invited Hitler to invade his nation so that he could then become prime minister of a puppet kingdom under the Nazi rule. He, and he uh, initiated his country's participation in the final solution. To be a Quisling is to be an, an absolute traitor. All right, those are historical examples. Let me use something a little bit more modern. In 2010, the words, I'm taking my talents to, to South Beach of LeBron James uh, sent a fire throughout Cavaliers fans. And here's the deal. This isn't me just picking at random. These were in the top 10 betrayals in human history. <laughs> yeah. And here's the point. Betrayal hurts. Cavs fans burned his jerseys, pulled down the banners, spray painted over the, the stuff in the city of Cleveland. Betrayal hurts. And we need to remember that Jesus, when he is betrayed, it hurts, both for us, but also that he understands your betrayal. In fact, to belabor the point about Gethsemane, Jesus is in the very place that should have been his place of safety. And that's where the betrayal takes place. In that garden of Gethsemane, and again, we could over-spiritualize a little bit by saying this is the place where olives are crushed to make oil. Olive oil in the scripture is a symbol of life and joy and anointing. And in, in my mind, before we see the crushing of what we look at at communion, the crushing of grapes to symbolize Jesus' blood shed for us, that his very spirit is crushed, beginning with the betrayal of his friend. He did that for us. He did that also in, in a way that we can say today, he understands. It may well be that like Jesus, the place where you have been betrayed is in your very home. That's supposed to be a place of safety and warmth and fellowship. He knows. He understands. But Jesus calls us to unreasonable grace through his gospel. 
because he's undeterred. He is undeterred, even at the cost of betrayal. Well, let's look at the confrontation. So Jesus, Judas comes, the betrayal happens, the other gospels talk about Judas coming and kissing him, and then Jesus actually asserts himself. He goes, John says he goes out and he asks them, who is it you are seeking? In this entourage, again, we've described who's a part of it, they come to him and they say, Jesus of Nazareth, and he says, I am he. Jesus is intentional from this point forward in Jesus' passion, his suffering is both voluntary and his suffering displays or manifests his majesty as he obeys the Father. He goes out. He offers himself. And, of course, the text says that when he says, I am he, that they draw back and they fall down. One of the things that's fascinating about that little event is the only John describes it, and there is a ton of scholarly conversation on what exactly is happening here. Is it like John 8, 58, where Jesus is talking with the Pharisees about Abraham, and he just throws down this gauntlet, and he says, hey, before Abraham was, I am. He drops the name that God gave to Moses for the self-existent, preeminent, self-sufficient one. He calls himself Yahweh, and they are furious. Is it that? I think there's some element of that, right? Because when Jesus appears to uh, Saul and his companions on the road to Damascus, Saul tells us in Acts 26, this is what he says. He says, and we all fell to the ground. And then he hears the voice of Christ, Saul, Saul, who are you persecuting? But it's also likely that these this, uh, particularly the, the Roman troop, they came prepared to have to hunt and fight to arrest this peasant rabbi. And here he comes up. He can, you know, you can imagine they're adrenalized, right? They're, all right, here we go. And he comes out. He said, hey, who are you looking for? There's some element of, of surprise here. But uh, here's the point. Jesus is the one who permits this. He is in charge the whole time. And he's voluntary in his suffering. One scholar said it this way, they didn't fall forward in worship, they fell backward in fear, and here's the key word in my mind, absolute dismay. They just didn't know what to make of it. But Jesus, in offering and volunteering himself, he continues throughout to have a substitutive mindset. He is always driven by the fact that, that in his passion, he is giving himself for the sake of his own. We saw this in, in the upper room where he begins, what does he begin with? Washing the disciples' feet illustrating what he was going to do for them, what he expected of them. Then in the high priestly prayer, he spends most of the high priestly prayer praying for them, for their protection, for their joy, and even praying for you and me. Here again, Jesus says, I have told you I am he, therefore let these men go. His entire approach is to give himself for us. And here's the deal. By way of application, Jesus understands what it is to be confronted in an overwhelming way. Jesus understands that at times we need to confront, but he models a better way to do confrontation. Namely, it's confrontation that is for the sake of others. And I confess in my life, a lot of times when I enter into a, a confrontation, it's because I'm defending my pride. You know, you've heard the phrase, it's better to be kind than to be right. And so Jesus does confrontation a different way. It's for the sake of others. You might say that, what about those situations where I didn't even get to speak up in the meeting? I was talked over. Or what about things that we should confront? 
I'll give you, for instance, from the political arena, if you will, and I think it's much less politics than it is just biblical. I think the church has a responsibility to speak out for the unborn. But I will, I will test myself in this. Are there times that I do it out of pride or ideology or sort of political cause, or do I really have concern for those that are less fortunate? Several years ago, when the state of New York passed a law uh, regarding partial birth abortion, and they lit the sky pink in celebration, I wrote a blog called We Are What We Celebrate, felt a responsibility to confront, but believe me, my motives, check my motives, check my heart, check the word choices I'm making. Am I doing this for the sake of let them go, or me, or even on behalf of the church? There is a place for confrontation, and Jesus does call us to a different kind of grace because he is undeterred, even by the confrontation, even by overwhelming confrontation. Well, we could spend more time there, but I want to get to the next part because enter Peter. You know, you got to love Peter. Peter is a man of action. I see myself in him sometimes. You know, I know people in my life are even more Peter than I am, right? Peter's got this short sword, and he rips that thing out and dices this poor, <laughs> this poor servant's ear off in all of his zeal. And I love that John is the only gospel writer that tells us the name of this servant. His name is Malchus. Now, a little apologetic aside here. One of the great defenses of the authenticity of the New Testament is all the detail of eyewitness, right? So if you remember in the other Gospels, or if you're not familiar with the New Testament, when Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane with the eleven, he then sort of peels off the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, and then they sit, and then Jesus goes further. And so it's likely as they've come together that Peter, James, and John are standing next to each other, and John, as he writes this Gospel, He's super close with Peter, and he's right there. He sees the whole thing goes down. It's also likely, although we don't know it definitively, that John is also the disciple that knows the high priest, which would explain why he knows the name of the servant of the high priest. Nonetheless, these kinds of details are impossible uh, to fake if you're trying to put together some ancient hoax. So you can study that on your own. But the Malchus piece as well, I think is important. And I'm going to double back to this in a, in a few minutes because... When Peter acts rashly, thinking he's helping Jesus out, he assaults Malchus. Malchus isn't the real enemy. And I think there's a lesson for us to learn in that. But Jesus first says, he rebukes Peter, and he says, am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? Well, what is the cup that Jesus is speaking of? Again, if you're new to the scriptures, we can find a, a few passages that talk about this cup in both the Old and New Testament. Perhaps one of the clearest is in Jeremiah. And Jeremiah says this, This is what the Lord God of Israel said to me, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and make all the nations to whom I am sending you to drink from it. They will drink, stagger, and go out of their minds because of the sword that I am sending among them. In other words, the cup symbolically symbolizes God's judgment on his people. In the context of Jeremiah, it was literally the sword of another nation that would punish his people. But it has a larger application in that as human beings, God is going to punish evil. He is going to punish sin and rebellion, mine and yours. And when Jesus stands, and earlier in the garden, Matthew 26 tells us that going a little further, he falls face down and he prays, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. 
Jesus knows what he's facing. He is going to, spiritually speaking, take that cup from God the Father and to use sort of old English language, drink it down to its dregs for you and for me. And he's able to do that because he is the perfect, sinless, holy, obedient Savior, and he is God in the flesh. And so he's able to absorb the wrath of God for you and me so that we can receive, as we trust in him, complete forgiveness, and as John makes the case over and over again, eternal life. That's what Jesus has done. That's the essence of the gospel because Jesus is focused, as it were, on the right enemy. See, Jesus understands that there are times, as we talked about with confrontation, there is a need for response. There is a need to respond to injustice. There is a need to respond to what's wrong, whether it's something on a macro level in society or perhaps in your life. It might be, if I don't speak up, listen, I got to defend my reputation in the company or in my extended family or wherever it might be. Or again, what about this political agenda? We need to stand up. We need to respond to whatever it might be. Here's where the naming of Malchus, I think, is really important. Again, Malchus is not the enemy. Malchus isn't the one who needs to be defeated. Malchus is this sort of almost bystander-type character. And I think oftentimes when we try to act on God's behalf and we're rash or even irrational in that, we hurt the Malchuses of the world and not the real enemy. You say, well, who is the real enemy? Jesus goes to the cross undeterred. He goes to the cross to defeat our ancient adversary, Scripture says, Satan, the devil. Yes, in 2021, we believe that the evil one is a real being. But he also goes to the cross to defeat sin, and namely its power over us, to free us from the dominion of sin. And its offspring, as it were, death itself, both physical death eventually and spiritual death immediately. You see, Jesus is undeterred even when one of his own followers acts rashly. He stays focused on what is, who is the real enemy on his way to the cross for you and me. So let me make a, a probably somewhat um, uncomfortable act, uh, uh, application here. If you spend all of your leisure time watching CNN and reading liberal bloggers and so on and so forth, or conversely, you spend all of your leisure time or a bunch of it watching Fox News and reading conservative bloggers, if that's what's filling your mind and heart, it's likely that the, the enemy in your mind that you're picturing is more of a malchus than anything to do with the kingdom. And we've said this a few times over the last year that maybe you just need to take a time out from social media or the news or whatever it might be and spend that time here and say, Lord, Help me focus on the real mission. Help me to have the same enemy that you did. And oh, by the way, Jesus already defeated the enemy. And Jesus understands a need for response. The gospel indeed calls me to unreasonable grace from our point of view because Jesus is undeterred. He's undeterred by betrayal. He's undeterred by the overwhelming confrontation. He's even undeterred when we blow it and act irrationally, thinking we're doing him, helping him out. Well, my time's limited. I want to cover the last section very briefly this morning. And in fact, Zach will be doubling down on this passage, these passages later anyway. But Jesus is ultimately, he's brought to the, to the uh, uh, um, 
courtyard of the high priest, and he's tried illegally by Annas, the high priest. Now, a little bit of background. Annas here is, it should have been the high priest for his lifetime, but the Romans intervened in AD 18 or so and, and sort of installed his son-in-laws. So there's really two high priests. Jesus is going to appear before both of them. But he's brought to the, the high priest's house, and here's the point. So here's the high priest, uh, former and current, as well as members of the Sanhedrin. These are the very people and Jesus, of course, knows this, who knowing the Old Testament so intimately should have immediately recognized him, welcomed him, and celebrated him as Israel's Messiah. This, again, should have been another safe place, and yet here he is being tried and falsely accused in a very place that should have been a place of warm embrace and making known that the Jewish Messiah had come. And right on the heels of that event, out in the courtyard, is one of his dearest friends, the one who had just taken that rash action with the sword, denying that he even knows him. He is tried and denied by those who should know better and those, in Peter's case, who should know him so well. It really is another form of betrayal. This morning, brothers and sisters, Jesus knows what it is to be tried and denied, left hanging, and he's done that for us. It's a poignant reality that Jesus calls me, the gospel calls me, to an unreasonable grace, better word, undeserved. An undeserved grace because Jesus is undeterred, resolute, single-minded in his journey to the cross for me. You know, I think that we resonate with these things, betrayal and confrontation and rash response and trial and denial, if you will, because these are things that have happened to us. If not all of them, at least one of them at one time, we, we know the emotion of these things. But here's the great irony of it. We've also been the perpetrator. Or let me speak for me. You see, I am the one for whom he walked that valley and waited in that garden for what he knew was coming. I am the one who's caused him to know the agony of betrayal. I am the one who's acted rashly many times in my life thinking I was doing God a favor. And I am the one who's tried him and found him wanting in my own heart and denied him when I'd promised him allegiance over and over and over again. It's for me and for you that he's done this. Because he walked that valley to me, for me, because he walked that valley for you, we can respond with unreasonable, undeserved grace. Paul tells us, and he's talking within the Christian community here, but he says in Ephesians 4, be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving one another because God in Christ forgave you. Oh, how he loves us. Because we can only do this because of Jesus. It's in Christ alone. So let's stand together and sing this song as we conclude.